You want to get out your uh, sermon outline that says the anointing of Christ. While the children are going out, some of you may be wondering if Mark Rist is always that intense, and that's uh, certainly not the case. Um, He's just really excited to have another guy named Mark on the session to counterbalance all the Daves. So... If you had been named Dave, there was no chance this was happening. Hey, uh. Anyways, we are in John chapter 12, having raced through chapter 11 in five weeks. Um, the, uh, we have finally gotten to chapter 12 uh, as we go through the Gospel of John. What a great book this has been. And... Uh, it's really exciting. I'm starting to uh, hear we're putting them all up online. Brian beating their way on vacation, but he's been real good about getting them up on our website. And I'm starting to hear from people in other places that say, hey, I heard your sermon on this. And it's kind of like, oh, really? I hope it was good. <laughs> so it's been, uh, it's been kind of neat. But I, I love the Gospel of John and the stories as you heard uh, in the uh, Mark share earlier. There's so many great things there. And we have another one of those just fascinating stories before us today. Doesn't look like it's a huge deal. You can kind of read through it and get on to the more important stuff. But this is one of those ones that I just think is really good. Start at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember the setting, the, the context here. Uh, Jesus has just raised Lazarus. And uh, many people come to believe, and many leaders are rising up against him, uh, persuaded that they have to stop him. And that's the stage, is uh, there's been a great increase in belief and a great increase in opposition because of the raising of Lazarus. And it says, again, starting at verse 1, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not on account of, uh, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have your word in front of us this morning. We have accounts of people believing and people not believing. Lord, we pray this morning that you would work faith, belief into our hearts. 
that as we leave here today, we would be people who believe more than when we arrived. We ask that you would do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Who said the following words? And they're kind of mean, nasty, harsh, tough. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, you blind fools, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Have a nice day. Thank you very much. You recognize those words? Sure. They come from Jesus, the gentle shepherd, the meek and lowly savior, the one described as gentle and humble of heart. How could Jesus talk so tough to people he claimed to love? Why did he say these things? And I think there's probably several reasons actually why he said those things, but one of them surely is because they're true. His words were upsetting. Difficult to receive, hard to hear, hard to swallow, but true. Sometimes in our lives, the truth must be told. With no room for confusion or misunderstanding to avoid the greater uh, danger and the greater damage of living by lies. And because Jesus loved people, he wanted them to come to grips with the truth before they shipwrecked their lives. So we come here to John chapter 12. We see that Jesus loved people, but he loved them honestly. So let's turn to our passage this morning. The first thing we find there is a picture of tender love. Tender love. That should be the first blank there in your outline. Starting at verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Look at these verses with me. We see that there's a dinner being held in Jesus' honor. Martha is serving. Mary is loving. No conflict this time like we saw in Luke 10. Just tenderness and devotion. Incredible devotion. 
After all, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and Mary and Martha are showing gratitude for it the best way they knew how. And it begins with just a short comment about Martha. Martha is serving. She's been in the kitchen. She's running to and fro. And this is a beautiful thing. She is serving her Savior. What an extraordinary privilege it is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to do something for him, to cook a meal for him, to make some sandwiches for him, to make uh, coffee and tea for Jesus. And here's Jesus in a home, and people are gathered for a meal, and we've all been there. You've been to somebody's home, and you gather around the table, and uh, you have a meal, and then you sit around and, and talk and drink coffee and have dessert, and there's laughter and fellowship, and then somebody tells a story, and then somebody else tells a better story. And you know, essentially, it's what's going on here. And Jesus knows all about what it's like to be in a home. He knows what it's like to have to prepare a meal. He knows what it's like when there's a little bit of tension because the people are arriving and the food isn't ready yet or there isn't enough or it's not hot enough. And he knows all about that. He's been there. This meal is in Jesus' honor. It says so in verse 2. But the focus isn't really on Martha and it's not really on Mary. It's on Jesus. But for a minute, John wants us to see something that Mary did. She gives of what he has, of what she has. She gives of what she has. I mean, dinner's probably over. I mean, think about this. Perhaps you've been wondering, you know, I wonder what they had for dinner. What do you serve Jesus? You know, what do you serve when Jesus is coming for dinner? Some of you go into a panic when the minister uh, comes. Imagine if Jesus is coming for dinner. You know, I don't want to be in that house an hour before he shows up. Anyway, dinner's probably over. And then suddenly Mary, Lazarus' sister, Martha's sister, does something. Perhaps at first nobody noticed. Maybe they casually looked and thought, what in the world is she doing? Perhaps the conversation continued. All of a sudden the room is filled with Chanel number no. 5 or whatever, a perfume. And everybody's conscious of it. And Mary has taken about a pound of very costly perfume. Now, you can walk through Nordstrom's or Macy's or something, and they have those huge, you know, like a dozen perfume. They're just like whole settings. They're like mini stores inside the store. And it's really expensive, and you get a little teeny tiny bottle. It's like an ounce, you know, and it's like 90 bucks. And she takes a pound It's a lot of perfume. And it's a costly perfume. It's a very expensive, enormous amount of perfume. And it's the good stuff. It's not the stuff from you know you buy at Walmart. This is a really good stuff. This is the most expensive thing you could possibly buy. It's worth, and Judas has done the reckoning, he's the treasurer. It's worth about 300 denarii, which is about a year's wages. Once you subtract the Sabbath, uh, all the Sabbaths and all the feast days and holidays and stuff, 300 is about how many working days a person would have. It costs a a year's wages. So if they lived in Loudoun County, you're talking about $90,000. This is not inexpensive 
It's not small. It's an enormous amount of perfume, and it's enormously expensive perfume. Spent a year's wages on this. Mary is giving the very best thing she has. It's the most expensive thing. It's a treasured thing. And it was for burial. Didn't have anything to do with odor or deodorant or any of those things. It was all about death and burial. And Mary's used it up. It was probably a family treasure. It was as important, perhaps, to Martha and Lazarus as it was to her. But she's used it. It's gone. She's poured it on Jesus. She gives the best thing she has. Do we know anything about that? Do we have any idea what Mary's doing here? To be so overcome with love for Jesus Christ that you would do anything for him at whatever cost, no matter how ridiculous it would appear to others, no matter how extravagant it would seem. And Mary didn't care. She only had utter devotion for her Savior. And she anoints Jesus with this costly perfume and then washes his feet with it. Think about that. Feet that only wore sandals. Feet that got hot and sweaty and smelly and were covered with dirt and dust of the Judean countryside. And then she loosens her hair in a room full of men, which a respectable woman of that day would never do. And then she touches him. A single woman caressing the feet of a rabbi. Not done. Not even among friends. And then Mary wipes his feet dry with her hair. You ever see anyone do that? Me neither. I doubt the disciples had ever seen that before. Now compare Mary's devotion with those who would soon play a prominent role in Jesus' life. We're entering into the last week of Jesus' life now. And Mary's devotion as compared to, say, Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. How about Mary's devotion as compared to the half-hearted followers who hailed Jesus on Sunday and shouted for his crucifixion on Friday? How about Mary's devotion as compared to the Pharisees and the chief priests who are plotting to murder both Mary's brother and Mary's Lord? How about Mary's devotion as compared to the disciples? Here we see she's voluntarily washing Jesus' feet. The next chapter we'll see the disciples must be taught to wash one another's feet. Mary's devotion was given to Jesus regardless of the cost. This is an expensive perfume. It's worth a year's wages. And Mary's devotion is given to Jesus regardless of what others might think. After all, people just didn't do what Mary did. And the fragrance of the perfume fills the house. Why does God put that line in there? He wants you to get a sense. Smell it. Be there. Put yourself in the house at the dinner table. We read from 2 Corinthians 2 in Sunday school this morning where it says that we are the fragrance of life to those who believe and the fragrance of death to those who don't. The fragrance fills the house and it fills the church and it goes all over the world and no one ever again can overlook the devotion that this woman had for her Savior. 
And it would be great if this was just a story about great devotion and tender love. But there are several built-in contrasts here. And if you miss them, you won't get the point of the story. Because John wants us to see uh, that love, to use a cliche, is a many-splendored thing. And another aspect of the love we see here is tough love. Tough love, starting at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself uh, to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So we see not everyone present there saw Mary's action as this beautiful act of wholehearted devotion. Judas was there. He didn't like it. He objected to what she was doing. It was a question of his pragmatic concern versus her unqualified devotion. And notice that what Judas said in and of itself was not bad. But his motive for saying it was Judas was simply dishonest. He's looking to enrich himself at the expense of others, at the expense of the poor, at the expense of Mary, at the expense of Jesus, at the expense of the other disciples. As we saw back in chapter 10 in the story of the Good Shepherd, Judas is the hired hand who doesn't care for the sheep. He couldn't have honestly answered those questions earlier. His eyes have been overcome by greed, and what started as a little pilfering from the money bag ends up as betraying Christ for silver coins. But remember, this is no surprise to Jesus. And he turns and rebukes Judas, saying, verse 7, Leave her alone. She may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. That sounds extraordinary. It almost sounds odd. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What an extraordinary thing to say. If Jesus wasn't the Son of God, if Jesus wasn't the divine Messiah, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, wouldn't that be the most incredibly arrogant thing to say? Wouldn't it? Be honest. I mean, it sounds arrogant to me. But the point is, he is the Son of God. He is the divine Messiah. He is the Lord incarnate in their midst. And if Mary was ever going to do anything, now was the time. Because he only has a week left, and then he'll be crucified. And then John tells us that Judas was the keeper of the money bag, and he used to put his hand in it. He used to steal from it. Now, don't make the mistake of running to the end of the story of Judas' life and reading all of that back here. Because at this point in the narrative, John is, of course, writing after the fact, but at this point, nobody expected Judas to betray Jesus. Nobody. And what we have here is a clue to how spiritual apostasy takes root and how it grows until it shackles the heart so there's no possibility of escape. We have a clue as to exactly how spiritual betrayal takes place. The root of bitterness grows in Judas's heart. It begins to manifest itself here. And if left unguarded, unchecked, undealt with, you know, it's possible to profess to be a believer. Judas is one of the 12 disciples, one of the apostles. He's one of the faithful band who've been with Jesus for almost three years. 
It's possible to be a professing believer. It's possible to be a member of the church. It's even possible to be a a ruling elder in the church, an office bearer, and still not believe. And what triggers his comment? Money. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's taken its grip on him. He can't see this incident without thinking of how much was that worth. There's the greatest contrast imaginable here between Judas and Mary. One is given over to the devotion of Jesus. The other is given over to the gratification of self. It's a contrast between selflessness and selfishness. But get this point. Jesus loved Judas too. And he was going to be honest with him. There's no reason to question her. She's giving her all for him. She's holding nothing back. And Jesus explodes Judas's reasoning by telling him that this was necessary for his burial. He would be leaving them soon. He's going to be dying for them soon. Honest words. Leave her alone. But that little reprimand, that little public rebuke, I think it got to him. I think it was the catalyst that began the process in his heart that led to his betrayal of Jesus. He began to hate him. He began to resent what Jesus said. You know, you see, wouldn't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that Jesus didn't have long to live and not if he's coming back to Jerusalem, which he's doing. They're already plotting to kill him. We've seen that about five times. Well, then well, what's going to become of Judas then? Why not ensure that he'd have the means and livelihood to survive the rest of his life in some form of luxury? And here's the opportunity, and it's gone. He could have taken that perfume and sold it. For a year's salary, kept the money, hidden it. I think Jesus was never able to let it go. And that root of bitterness grew. Because within hours of this incident, Judas will walk two miles or so from Bethany into Jerusalem to the high priest, and they're going to ask him how much. 30 pieces of silver, half a year's wages, a lot of money. It can happen, and it did happen. But Jesus and Mary aren't the only ones demonstrating love here. There's other people present. And whether intended to or not, they demonstrated a form of love in their own way. So another aspect of love that we see here is a temporary love. Verse 9, a temporary love. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Jesus told Judas uh, to leave Mary alone. However, soon it would be Jesus who would be the one who would be left alone. See, in spite of all the praise and adoration now, the large crowd, the the crowds of people following him around, in spite of the mobs of people who would be gathering to watch his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, soon, very soon, he would be abandoned. The crowds would turn against him. His disciples would desert him. His enemies would capture him, convict him, and kill him. And yet, uh, the love that all these people thought they were showing to Jesus would soon disappear. It's kind of like driving into a fog that's descended into a valley. Soon they'd be uh, no longer able to see clearly. They would no longer be able to understand fully. 
they would no longer be able to follow closely. And it's like a fog is going to just descend on these people. And that's not the worst of it. Because then we have this bold, blatant, total lack of love. Verse 10 and 11. Total lack of love. It says, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And now we see they've added Lazarus to their list of people who need to be gotten rid of. You see, now Lazarus is exhibit A. His life provides proof positive for having faith in Jesus. Having problems believing? Just look at Lazarus. The one who was dead and buried is now out and about, alive and well. And he's forcing people to move from following the traditions of the Pharisees to following Christ. Lazarus is a problem. But as for the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, fog's been descended on them for a while now. They have never seen clearly. They never understood fully. They never followed closely. They saw a situation that's upsetting their carefully staged life. They're not accomplishing anything. They're not getting anywhere. The crowds around Jesus are getting larger. seems that Jesus is getting more popular. And the peace is getting fragile. And that's one thing the Pharisees and the priests put great value on. Peace. See, the crowds are hoping for a new king and ruler who would overthrow the Roman occupation. And the Pharisees were afraid of the very same thing. Because there'd be no peace. The crowds thought Jesus was coming to kick out the Romans and there'd be a violent uprising, and the one thing the priest didn't want was any more violence. And yet both groups, the crowd and the priests and the Pharisees, they're all wrong. See, they put their faith in a false peace, which to them is merely the absence of conflict. They wanted to get rid of Jesus because they're afraid he'd give the crowd what they wanted. Whereas if they had put their faith in Jesus, then they would have gotten real peace but they just couldn't see the spiritual reality. They only had the political perception. And John wants us to see a deeper story here because outside of the house, many Jews have come from Jerusalem to Bethany. It's only a couple miles away. And they've come to see Lazarus. They've also come to see Jesus. And many of them, look at verse 11, are believing now. And the chief priests, verse 10, are plotting not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus too. So you've got this contrast. You've got people plotting to kill Jesus, and you've got people who are putting their faith in Jesus. And John, the author of this story, is saying uh, something to us of profound significance. Which is it going to be, my friend? Which side are you on? Which group are you going to follow? Are you going to be with Judas and the chief priests and the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus? Is that the group you're going to follow? Because if you don't love Jesus, if you don't understand what Mary is doing here, then that's the group you're following. Or are you going to be with the group of people who are putting their faith and trust and devotion in Jesus Christ? Are you going to face the truth no matter how difficult 
and believe in Jesus and come to understand, even in some small way, what real peace is all about? Or are you going to turn away from the truth because it's inconvenient and uncomfortable and turn away from the one who brings the truth and hope for a ceasefire in this war over your soul? What do you want? And whenever John presents us with that kind of contrast, devotion and betrayal, truth, peace, love, hate, kind of forces you to ask yourself, where am I? You know, obviously I think I'm on the devotion, truth, love side of the equation. There are too many people around that could say that's not always the case. And a lot of times we get stuck in the middle, don't we? We don't know which way to go. Kind of know, you know, I ought to be on the truth side, but that's going to be a real pain in the neck. And that's a lot like all of us, I think. I'm hoping it's not just me. Facing conflict and can't decide. You know, because very often we don't want the truth. We don't want honesty. We want peace. You know, someone once said parents send both kids to their room when the kids have been fighting because parents don't want justice, they want peace. I think they're right. See, we value peace over truth, politeness over honesty, comfort over real authentic relationships. And it leads us into a tunnel of chaos. And so we'd say things like, if I told my boss what I really thought, he'd blow a stack. If I told my husband how I really feel, he'd get defensive. If I told my parents what I really think about school, they'd be too disappointed to understand. If I told my wife how frustrated I am, she'd just get angry. And on and on we go, explaining why we can't afford to tell the truth. Don't get me wrong, we all believe that honesty is the best policy, we just don't live that way. And we know the scripture says, speak the truth in love and put off falsehood and speak truthfully to one another. We just don't want to do it. It's too hard. We want peace, and all we end up with is a ceasefire. And I can tell you, having spent 12 years in the infantry, you never let your guard down during a ceasefire. You know, there's a demilitarized zone in Korea. Because we've never had peace. We've only had a ceasefire. And there are huge armies on both sides. I was reading, I was preparing this, uh, a book by Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek Community Church. And he writes about one incident uh, in his church that just seemed to fit here. A man came up, um, uh, he was preaching about honesty. And a man came up to him and complained after the service that He felt he was being labeled as a dishonest sinner. He said he considered himself an honest man. Bill asked him, well, have you been absolutely faithful to your wife? Well, I'm in sales. We travel a lot, you know. Bill looked at him and asked him about his expense account. So, well, you know, everybody stretches the truth a little bit. Finally, he questioned his sales technique. Did he ever exaggerate or overstate a claim? He'd say, hey, that's just standard in our industry. 
And he just looked at him and said, well, you've just told me you're an adulterer, a cheater, and a liar. And the man exploded. How dare you call me those things? The man is living in a tunnel of chaos because he failed to face the truth. The truth hurt. The truth upset his false sense of peace. The truth forced him to make a choice about changing his life. And that's hard because most of us will do you know, near anything to avoid conflict. And when people submerge their true feelings in order to keep the peace and preserve harmony, they wind up undermining the integrity of the relationship. They buy peace on the surface, but underneath the surface, there are hurt feelings and troubling questions and hidden hostilities, and we just keep shoving them down into a tunnel deep beneath our calm outward appearance but inside we're churning the psychologist m scott peck coined the term the tunnel of chaos to describe that and i'm not a big fan of most of his writing but that the tunnel of chaos had the ring of truth to it everywhere i look i see people who need to experience honesty People who are precious to God, but who are running around in circles, dazed by deception. I see marriages on the edge, kids pushing their luck, adults getting destroyed by constant pleasure-seeking, people disintegrating in loneliness, and we watch and we wring our hands and we don't say anything. And somebody has to get their attention and say, I love you too much to sit back and watch you shipwreck your life and shipwreck your marriage and shipwreck your job and shipwreck your soul. So sit down and listen. I don't like doing this, but I have to because these things are true and I love you too much to sit quiet and watch you hurt yourself. Where people agree to follow the Lord and believe his word and speak the truth in love, there can be real peace. So are you going to face the truth? Or are you going to turn away? This passage is full of contrasts about truth and devotion and love. And what it's like when you don't have those things. Are you going to believe in Jesus? Or are you going to turn away? Are you going to demonstrate devotion or are you going to be devoured by bitterness? Are you going to seek peace no matter what the cost? Or are you willing to settle for a ceasefire? Just what type of love are you willing to show? Jesus, I think, is very interested in hearing your answer. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.